with every pound we put in that plate or we do electronically, we are not just giving an offering. We are actually building something, releasing something in the earth. We are changing, potentially we can change nations with this. All right, so I want to lift our vision from just giving to changing the world with our money. All right, because when we give, it's for the glory of God expressed through his church. And he is about building a glorious church, not a has-been church, not a weary church, not a last century church, not a church that's irrelevant, not a church that's tired, not a church that's confused about what it's doing, but building a glorious church. And this is part of that happening. So I want you to turn with me to the Bible, to Isaiah 62. And we're going to read Isaiah 62 together. And, and I want you to, the word Jerusalem or Zion, all that comes up in this passage. And of course, when it was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus came, probably the first thought in the mind of Isaiah was for the return of the people of God to, uh, to Jerusalem, having been in exile, and it's the restoration of that, that temple and that city. And that did happen, but only in a very small way. Because what Isaiah plugged into, and, and, and later on we, we see that in Isaiah, as he prophesies in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, he's actually plugging into a heavenly revelation of Jesus and his church changing the world. So, so when we just read this through, uh, uh, just when you see those words, don't think of an earthly city, think of the church on the earth. All right? So... I don't know if, I'm oh, sorry, just the whole of it, Isaiah 62, sorry, yes, I was not specific enough, so, <laughs> from verse 1, from the top, so you go, Zion, that's the hill that Jerusalem was, was, was put on, so it's used as a picture of the people of God, the city of God, the church, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, for Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet, till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. This guy is stirred up about God's city, God's people being famous on the earth, in time and space, not somewhere in history. The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. Hence, he's looking forward to something new. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or your name or your land desolate, but you will be called Hepzibah and your land Beulah. Don't worry about that for now. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. And, and just that verse 4, take note of that word delight because we're going to pivot on that about halfway through this message. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have post posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent all day or night. You who call on the Lord, give him, give yourselves no rest. And give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her what? The praise of all the earth, pretty, pretty prominent. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who, who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people. 
build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called, sought after, the city no longer deserted. So when Jesus appears on the scene many hundreds of years after this prophetic word, he stands up and he says to the people that are gathering around him that you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And he's picking up the themes of these great prophecies of Isaiah and he's, he's applying them to his followers. And later on in his ministry he says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I just want to say to you, I want to say to you spiritual warfare people, I want to say to you worship warfare people, I want to say to you prophetic people, all that you pray and all that you worship is excellent, but the thing that's going to kick the gates of hell in is the church. The church united, the church glorious, the church walking together with the prophetic words, with the intercession, with the worship. Do you understand? It happens as a community, not as a bunch of individual ministries. Just thought I'd throw that one in, not even in the notes. That was a free one. <laughs> so we're, we're called by Jesus to be part of this incredible unfolding in history of the glorious church. Something impressive, something central to the nation, something where people see and actually are drawn to what they see. They see the wisdom. They see the glory of God. They see the presence of God. They see the power of God. They see how the church does leadership. They see how the church does relationship. They see how the church loves one another and loves them. They see how the world does miracles, the church does miracles. They see how the people who believe nothing is impossible for their God. They see that. They may not be part of it. They may not even think they want it, but they know it. And that knowledge that sort of emanates and is transmitted out of the life of the church is magnetic to the community around it and it is also transformational to the community it sits in. The health of a nation rises and falls on the strength of the church, not the wisdom of the politicians. The church is not a side issue, it is the issue. She's worth every sacrifice, she's worth every pound, she's worth every hour, she's worth every prayer, she's worth every early morning, she's worth every late night, she's worth every, every time you drag your children out of bed to bring them to church, the church is worth it. Because it's the church that will change the world. Nothing else, there's no other institution, initiative that will fundamentally change the warp and weft of society. It's the church. It's not to say other things aren't good or valid, but actually it's the community of the church that is designed by God, our Father in heaven, to be the thing that is salt in the earth. Not sending money to children in Africa, although I do that and I love that and I think that's appropriate. Do you understand me? But the church doesn't look sexy, the church doesn't look funky. That's because 
sometimes we've forgotten who she is and who we are. And we believe, mistakenly, that we can make it on our own, that some kind of specialized ministry will be the point of breakthrough. There's nothing in Scripture I can find that tells me that is true, that is healthy, or is that, that is going to succeed. It may sound smart, it may sound wise, and it may feel like it's the way to go, but actually, Jesus said he'd build a church, not send a one-man ministry. I'm very excited about this. I've given my life to this. We are a city that's going to be sought out. We are a place that God delights in. And literally, if you look at the different translations, that not only will God, does God delight in us, because he delights in us, the people around us start to delight in us. That doesn't mean they all join us necessarily, but they like us because of all the things I said before. We are the home of the glory of the Lord. We are where the angels show up. We are the place, the repository of all heaven's wisdom. The Apostle Paul said that actually it's through the church that principalities and powers, unseen realms, see the wisdom of God through you. But not through the individual, but through the church, through the community built together. That's how angelic and demonic realms are influenced Fundamentally, spiritual warfare happens because the church is getting its act together. Not because someone prayed a single prayer. It's because a community, as the army of God, the living bride, the beautiful, beautiful community, family of the Lord, gets its act together, principalities and powers see that and their gates fall down. Because you loved your friend in the pew... Hell trembles. Because you put that into the, uh, the efforts of the church, hell trembles and falls. Don't see it as just a few quid. See it as soldiers in the army of the Lord, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth and making the devils tremble and flee away as you generously give your finance to the vision of the church. We say, well, the church isn't meeting all my needs. Well, it's not there to meet all your needs. The church isn't what I thought it would be. Well, maybe what we, you thought was not correct in your expectation. Or maybe the reason it isn't what you think it should be is it's your job to make it that part come to life. Do you see? <clears throat> Jesus said... I will build my church. Paul said of Jesus that he loved his bride so much that he is nurturing us. He is washing us. He is, he is nourishing us. He is cleansing us until we become a bride without spot or wrinkle that doesn't need rescue. Actually, I believe the biblical pattern isn't a church that weak, that's weak, divided, and spotty that cries to the Lord to rescue it out of his crumbling generation, but actually a church that is wholesome, healthy, having effect, winning, victorious, displaying the kingdom of heaven, and cries with the Spirit to the bride, it's now time to come. That's my eschatology 
A strong church, a mighty church, partnering with Holy Spirit that knows it's time for the return of the Lord because the commission that has been given to the church is being completed. Not because we're failing, but because we're succeeding. That's the trigger of the return of Jesus. I'd give 10 quid to that, would you? I'd give my life for that. That's what was happening this morning. The, the army, the angelic army of the Lord was here and asking for volunteers afresh. They won't do it for us, but they will do it with us. <laughs> you know, if you live a life without sacrifice, you're just living a life of selfishness. you take sacrifice out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity. If it didn't cost you something to be here, if it doesn't cost you something to be part of this, if it doesn't cost you something to make your relationships work, if it doesn't cost you something in your bank account, if it doesn't cost you something in your emotions when you worship, actually, what are you doing? We worship a Jesus who bled and died. He paid a price. There's a cross at the center of Christianity. And so many of you are paying that price and he celebrates that and he rejoices over that. But it's as if the angelic army are there behind us going, come on, come on, don't see this as a waste of time. Don't see this as a small thing. Don't see this as a way where you just need to be comfortable in your religion. This is a time to change the world. Are you signed up for it? Let me just give you a little bit of more on the nature of the church, just to fill it out for you. <clears throat> I could probably preach on this all day, but I'm not going to. <laughs> the word church in the New Testament is, in Greek, is ecclesia. To the, when Jesus said, I will build my church, the Jews would have heard, I will build my congregation. And Moses, when he led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he had a congregation. This was a new thing in the development of the purposes of God in the earth. So God started with a man, Abraham, who then became a nation which became the congregation of the Lord that was led out of slavery in Egypt into freedom and prosperity in the land of promise across the Jordan. So they heard Moses had his congregation, now Jesus is claiming to build his. Okay, That's what the Jewish mind heard. But the word ecclesia was a Greek word. What the Greeks and the Romans heard was not Jesus is going to build a congregation like Moses. They heard something very different. Because if you read Acts 19, which is worth reading, which is Paul in Ephesus, and there's a, it, the gospel is having such an impact that it's causing a riot. And they're grabbing Paul and his, and his companions, and they're trying to drag him into the arena, into the um, amphitheater, which 
Teresa and I have been there, we've visited Ephesus, and we've stood in this amphitheater, and it's this huge thing that they were trying to drag him into. And what, what, what the guy says, who's the, one of the leaders of the city, he says, there is a place for this because there is an assembly to bring your issues to. Now, the reason they built these amphitheaters was not primarily for shows or musical concerts. The size of the amphitheater told you how big the city was. And the reason for that is it was primarily built that every free family in the city had one seat in the amphitheater. So you could work out the average size of a family was whatever it was, four or five people, and every one of them had as, every family had assi in the amphitheater. That gave you the free man population. Then you doubled it because the rest were slaves, but they didn't get a seat in the amphitheater. So why, did, why was there a seat in the amphitheater? Because that was the assembly, Greek word ecclesia, where the city met to make decisions about the life of the city. It was the governmental seat of democracy for a city in Greek and Roman politics. Are you with me? When they heard, I will build my ecclesia, they're like, flipping heck, he's come to take over. He's building an alternative community to bring government to the earth. Same with the word apostle. Why did Jesus use the word apostle when they were familiar with the word teacher, with the word rabbi, with the word, uh, with the word prophet, with priest? All those words were available to Jesus. But he chooses a word from the Greek language that represented apostles, which became to be thought of in, in, in Roman conquest terms as actually people who arrived not just to conquer, but to to reproduce Roman culture in the place that had been conquered. They were, to a Roman, when Jesus said, I'm sending an apostles, they'd be like, wow, he tends to send people to change the world. He tends to send people to bring a new culture to the place that they go. So he's sending apostles and building churches the community outside of the Jews would be hearing, my goodness, they're taking over. The grand ambition of our Lord and Savior, the resurrected one, Jesus Christ, was to build communities influenced and led by people whose main goal was to change the world. And that he gave them the authority to do that. He said, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He made the ecclesia the place of government of the city. It was a replacement. It was an alternative. It was a higher reality starting to break out on the planet. And it broke out with great... Uh, momentum until it became institutionalized and forgot who it was but we are about a great work to quote Nehemiah we're about taking that back and I think some of the things that we have seen over the years like the knife crime thing that we referred to from a couple of years ago was actually 
us unbeknowing, actually us exercising ecclesial authority in a city to change an atmosphere which changes a behavior wider than we could ever do through a political means. I want to give to something like that. We're God's congregation, we're God's dwelling place, we're God's parallel government which seeks to take over not in a dominating ruling over sense but in a sense of the kingdom of God which is fundamentally a kingdom of influence that when it is planted it grows and grows and influence affects the whole thing. So you think about that, the kingdom is yeast, you don't need lots of yeast to make a whole loaf rise. But without the yeast, you've got flatbread. Hope Church is yeast in Glasgow. And it's going to rise in the glory of God. And many other churches, same thing. As we grasp the kingdom, share the kingdom, live the kingdom, it's yeast to our city that preserves and influences everybody else, whether they're in the church or not. So I'm excited about church. Church is the most happening thing on the planet, whether it looks sexy or not. From God's point of view, it's the sexiest thing on the earth because he's going to marry her. (laughs) Somebody should make that a film. I think some of the things I'm saying, they're powerful, they're visionary, and they're true. I think some of the reasons why church has, has had such difficulties, so, has been so warred against, so misunderstood, has lost its cutting edge, has become dull, because actually the enemy's pointing all the guns he has at anybody who takes what I'm talking about seriously. Because the threat to the gates of hell is not a lone prophetic intercessor It's a church that's being built by Jesus. And if he can interfere with that, get us to forget that, not line up with that, start to break up into our constituent parts, get grumpy with one another, have poor behaviors that mean we all get hurt and fall out and never come to church, he's won. He's stayed his final moment for another few years. And we're about a great work. We're about changing that. We're about changing that culture in the church, changing the culture of defeat, changing the culture of victim mentality that is in the church because the church has adopted it as its posture. We're a powerful people. Regardless of how many, we're a powerful people. I'm on time. Have a little victory dance here, right here. <laughs> so, do you remember, yeah, miracle victory. The, the, do you remember that I said, hold on to the idea of delight? So how, I want to, I've pumped out some vision here. I've pumped out some faith. I've pumped out some Bible teaching. I've pumped out some, some exhortation to believe in what God is doing in the earth. And his primary way of doing it is through the church. And that church is going to be glorious. And, and I want us to just pivot on that verse 4 out of Isaiah 62 because there's a parallel set of words and it's in Malachi 3, 6 to 12. So I wanna, this is something where, what can we do to make this thing happen? 
Yeah? What can we do to actually practicalize this? And, and I think there's an intentional connection from this. No longer will you be called desolate. And you're going to be a place of delight to then, if we can go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 through to 12, same word comes up at the end of that passage. Is that possible, David? Malachi 3, verse 6 to 12. So, I, so another prophet right at the end of the Old Testament says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. You see, our, our father is the opposite to what many people think. They think he's a fire-breathing destroyer. And so the good, re, the good news is he's always been a father, which means we're not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. You say, how do we rob you in tithes and offerings? I, I just pause there for a second. They're asking, how, how can we return to you? What's the issue here? And he says, you, your hearts can return to me by giving money. Let's just say it how it is. Your, what, how, I really want to come back to you. Lord. I want to increase my devotion to your Lord. Well, our way to do that is by giving money. Because Jesus said it slightly differently. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Did he not say that? Do we believe Jesus? Three people believe in Jesus. Okay, we're good. I'm teasing you. And he also says this outrageous thing, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. And they're like, how can we rob God? You know, God has everything. He owns everything. He isn't needy of anything. Who could break into God's house? I mean, like, he must have the best security in the universe. I mean, if you try and, you know, put on your cat burglar best stuff, your highest tech, how are you going to break in and steal God's stuff? So we read that and we're like, Rob, God can't rob God. How could God be robbed? Well, he goes on to explain, you robbed me in tithes and offerings. And he goes on, so you're like, how, how, is a, how is not giving your tithe which means tenth robbery. Yeah, I, I, I have the money. He doesn't have the money. I have the money. This, this is how I used to think of it. It, it. It's actually mine. So I choose to give it to him. Sometimes, most of the time, or never, depending on, or always, depending on your particular, yeah? But I get to choose because it's mine. He has a different opinion. First of all, as Kezia did such a good job last week, it's all his. And everything I have, he gave me. So he's the source of all of it. So this idea that this is mine is completely... That's a worldview. It means God's not involved in your world. Actually, if you think, oh, it's all my money, uh, you're not thinking biblically or, or from a God's perspective. Second point is, he's particularly having a go 
tithes and offerings here. And we just want to zero in on the tithe. You see, the tithe, the tenth of what you have, he actually, in a very special way, counts as already belonging to him. And if you don't give it to him, you're stealing from him. That's how much he thinks it's his. Do you understand? It's not locked away in a vault in heaven that you have to do some cat burglar funky thing to get. No, when you get your resources and they land in your bank account, he already thinks that 10% is his, and if you don't give it to him, you've stolen from him. Let's keep going. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Yow. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. How the heck does that work? Pretty much every verse in the Bible that talks about you giving this is connected to a promise of him giving you more of this if you give him what's due him. It, it, it's, I, I can't find one. If you, if you bring in what's supposed to bring in, he's going to pour out what you cannot access. He's going to multiply your resources, multiply grace over and over to you. And what Kezi didn't get to share last week, I'm just asked if I could share this. They have an incredibly generous lifestyle and gave away a whole ton of money over about two, three year period. And then they came to move house. They bizarrely got a pretty much cash offer on their flat, which was tens of thousands of pounds over market value. Tens of thousands on a flat valued around 120,000. Totally remarkable in the whole area. And somebody bought the house. Somebody moved from London and paid way, way, tens of thousands over the odds. And they sat down and looked and said, every penny we gave away over the last two, three years has just come back to us in that extravagant price that we were just given for our flat. Every penny. You give him this, you think, well, I don't know if I can make it this month. I don't know if I can make it this month. You know, it's not yours. It's not about whether you can make it. Well, I haven't got enough left over. That's because you didn't give it him to start with. Honestly, for Teresa and I, we have been living on cabbage and he's still got his 10%. There was time we couldn't. I can remember really clearly not being able to buy a birthday present for our oldest son. And we were about to tell him, like, son, we have no, you know, it's going to be really small. He wanted this snooker table. And, and he wanted a, not a full-size one because we, couldn't, we didn't have a house. It probably would have fitted in the garden. But, you know, he wanted a, he was 10, 11. He wanted a snooker table, play pool with his mates. And we really wanted him to have one. And we didn't have anything. And we were trying to figure out how, you know, he could get a box of sweets and he's just going to be so disappointed. And I can't remember if we were about to tell him or we told him. But our neighbor, who we didn't have much to do with, knocks on the door and says, D -d -d I'm getting rid. My son's moved out from home and he doesn't want to take the snooker table with him. It's yours for the amount of money we had. 
He still has the snooker table. I mean, he's 35 years old now. This was a pucker snooker, snooker table for stupid money. This is how this works. You don't stop doing this just because your money ran out in your month or you're feeling a bit crap about life. I tell you what, it affects you spiritually as well as materially what you do with this. Oh, he just pours out spiritual blessings. Well, he does pour out spiritual blessings and material blessings on those that give. And they're all about this. Oh, he's just going to throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out all the blessing so that he won't have any room for it. I mean, it's so good not to be living on cabbage anymore, isn't it, love? He's just blessed us so that we have other meal options in our house. But there was a time, there was a time, there was a time where we actually prayed. We were at Bible college, we actually prayed every day for money. And every week, God would send us five pounds. We put two quid of petrol in the car and three pounds of food. And the, ke- the, car, the car needle was rarely above empty. You know, driving the car was consistently an act of faith. And then someone gave us 50 quid and I'm driving and, and the day the 50 quid arrived there's a phone call and our mate says my car's broken down Andy can you come and tow me into the garage so I'm driving to pick him up and on the way there God says I want you to offer to fix his car and pay for all of it. I just got 50 quid that's an absolute fortune. You know this is our breakthrough financial provision. Anyway we did it and the money we had covered all he needed to have his car repaired. That's how this works. You right with that? Uh, number 11. That's the number of the bus I used to get to school, but never mind. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. So there's not just a provision, there's a protection that gets released in giving. So there's all sorts of disasters that you don't know about because they never happened because you gave your money. But look at this. This is where we were going. What happens? Come on. Fess it up, church. Look. All the nations will call you blessed. Yours will be, do you remember that word? Delightful land. Stick it in a bucket. Look what happens. Oh, I don't like this preach. Two in your face. Well, that's just how I am, all right? I'm not trying to force you to do anything, but I'm passionate about this because it works. This is the plan of God. I'm trying to provoke you. I'm trying to help you think. I'm trying to envision you. When we have our special offering next week, we're doing it because we want to change the world. We, we need a hope hub. We need a place to do stuff. We need a place to work out all the vision God has given us, which we've shared with you over recent weeks and months, and we really need it. What we're currently doing isn't working for us. It's giving us all kinds of problems, and we want to come together in a great new hub in the city center where we can do our school, we can expand our school, we can do our administration, we can do sozo, we can run a healing center, we can run a family center, but we don't have a space. So we need a space, and to get a space, we need money. And a lot of it's going to come from you. Not putting too fine a point on it, but we don't want you to show up and just go, well, you know, I've just got this in my pocket and, uh, you know, it's the church. We want you to give in faith. We want you to give believing for a miracle in your own life. 
We want to give you faith for the vision we carry as a community together. We're about a great work. We're about changing a city and changing a nation. And something happens as we give faithfully, as we bring to God what is really his anyway, that we get blessed and the nations start to say, you're blessed. Scotland starts to say, man, Hope Church is really blessed. It's a delightful place to go. Why? Because put this in the tray, in the plate. Well, it can't be true. Well, read the Bible. Don't argue with me. Well, you can argue with me, but I'll just say, read the Bible. How are we doing? Oh, so on time. Honestly, this is a miracle sermon. I could have spoken so much more, and I've really got to the point. So I don't want to rob God. So good day, bad day, great month, bad month, this, this is in. Always has been. Just that's how it is. It's his, so he gets it first. It's not like after tax. Do you give, do you tithe from your net or your gross? Why is that even a question? I see some uncomfortable movement in the, why, why is that a question? We're immediately now negotiating our position, aren't we? Like, oh, you know, hmm. Well, actually, what I get is after tax. No, what you get is before tax. I'll leave that with you. <clears throat> Otherwise, I'm going to get off on another one. <laughs> Remember, you do not have to be some stupid altruist to give money to God. He actually is encouraging you to believe for increase. He's actually saying, do it expecting multiplication back at you. And honestly, some people in the Christian world then go, oh, is it to the prosperity gospel? And I'm, well, all right, guilty as charged. But not because... What the thing that got distorted in the 80s and 90s, but because of what people like Wesley preached and Cranfield and people before they'd even heard of the prosperity gospel actually said, God gives you back more than you give to him. I want to quote you, John, John Wesley. You all know who John Wesley is? Three people. Okay, it's your turn to talk. I need a breather. Who knows John Wesley? Just say yay or nay. Okay, that's enough. (laughs) Revivalist of the 18th century. Massive effect, uh, particularly across Britain and the east coast of America. And he would preach both the virtues and responsibilities of wealth, which I thought Kezia did a really great job of last week. You really need to listen to that if you want this unpacked more. We must exhort all Christians to gain all they can and to save all they can. That is, in effect, to grow rich, to give all they can to those in need. (gasps) Rich. Use the word rich. Use the word rich in church. Yes. He wants you to get rich. Not by being selfish, not scrimping, not holding back from God, but by using what he's given you. To earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. 
You could look to someone near you and tell him. He did actually say he wants you to be rich if you make you feel better. Otherwise, just look at me. If you want more scripture on that, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. It's repeated over and over in, in chapter 9 about how he wants to multiply grace to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you have abundance in, for every good work. <laughs> I have time to make my... So this, this is a three-point sermon. The first point is it's a glorious church. The second point is we make it glorious by giving to it. We're giving to a glorious church to make a church more glorious so that God gets more glory in the earth. These are soldiers. These are resources. These, this is power to make the purpose of God happen on the earth. It's not just putting some money in a plate. And finally, <clears throat> not only does God want you to grow in wealth, see, nowhere in the Bible is poverty displayed as a virtue. The church has distorted scripture to make it that poverty is a virtue, that everyone should give all their money away and then, and then you'll be a real Christian. Then you'll be a radical Christian because you have no resources. I sometimes, our person may be called to do that, but I don't believe that is the scriptural injunction to every person. There's also scriptures, as Kezi referred to, to actually to the rich, explicitly in 1 Timothy 6, to the rich I say, enjoy what you have and be generous in good deeds. It doesn't say, give it all away. The rich young ruler is a specific example of someone who arrogantly thought they'd got it all together. Jesus' instruction to him was specific to him, not a general exhortation to all people with resources. Otherwise, we end up with everybody in the room living on cabbage. And nobody having any money to turn the lights on. Because it's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual because I'm poor. No, you're not. You're not spiritual because you're poor. You're not spiritual because you're wealthy. You're spiritual because Christ's in you the hope of glory. And you're working that out from glory to glory. So your spirituality is where are you in the glory to glory journey, not whether you have lots or little. It's not resource connected, although it can be. Just saying. But how much you don't have or how much you do have is not some sort of reflection on how awesome you are before the Lord. All right? He has a special place for everybody. The rich man and the person just scraping in the dirt somewhere in Mexico or Africa or places that some of you have been and I have been. He loves the poor. But not because he likes poverty. He loves the poor because he wants them rich. The gospel is good news to the poor not because it keeps them poor but because it there's, there's a recognizable effect of the gospel on the poor, which it lifts them out of poverty. There's an uplift of the gospel in every society where it is released. God's plan is not to make you poor or keep you poor. It's to meet your needs, give you wisdom, give you resources so that you can grow out into a place 
where you have more than enough. So you can then be a contributor, not a consumer. And I believe that God wants to make us an environment in which it's great for the wealthy to be. And a few years ago, I've been waiting for a moment to share this publicly, but I realized it's a couple of years ago now, for the first time in my whole life, I actually had two friends who were millionaires. Uh, and, and, and one was seriously like million, millions heirs, if you can have one of them. A squillion heir. <laughs> and interacting with these people is, is really interesting. And also a, a friend who, who ran who himself was not super wealthy, but who had been in charge of a department in a huge company, and his budget was a billion pounds. When you talk to people like this, they think differently about money. And actually, our envelope system, which some of you are like, you know, bloody envelope at church. One of the reasons we have it is because we got advice from the squillionaire and the guy who's in charge of the billions that you need to improve your financial processes. And you need to make it possible for people like us who want to give to you to do it easily because we don't walk around with wads of cash in our pocket. We want to be able to fill in and do it electronically or you know, the, these guys are wired to the 21st century and we were still wired to the early 20th century with checks and cash. Or probably cows even. We would have taken a cow. <laughs> <clears throat> Not chickens, they're a bit too noisy. I've been in church meetings where that is the offering. You know, a few eggs, a few feathers flying, you know, but that's the, that's the culture. But... We can't live in that. That's, that's the culture in the UK of 100 years ago or more. We need the ability to use cards and, you know, websites and, you know, all that fancy stuff, you know. So just for the slightly older end of the congregate. Um, so people like this, they want a different kind of reception in a church community than they're used to and they want to see a different kind of financial probity and strength than we are used to. And I believe God's called us not just to the poor but he's called us to the, to the wealthy. And here's, here's some pointers on, on how that's going to happen amongst us. The challenge I think for the church is we have this sense a lot of churches are going for the poor. The trouble with ministering to the poor is for most of us in this room, the poor are those people kind of down there. And if we're not careful, it, we can feel good about it because we are superior. They're the weaker, we're the stronger. We're reaching down to help them out and give them a hand up. That is not a healthy way to approach that. But it is often present and produces an unhealthy dependency. I found this in myself years ago. I remember we had friends and they were getting wealthier and wealthier. He was, she was a doctor and he, he was a, a, a high-flying guy in, in the legal world. And, and there was this moment where his new car arrived and I thought, oh crap, they're way beyond where we are. And at that moment, 
I know that in that realm, he was way more powerful than me. Do you still want to be their friend? Do you see what I'm saying? How can I help someone who has all that resource, all that going on in their life? You know, if I need people to need me at that level, there's something not going on right here. And some Christian ministries flowing out of that need to be needed. And someone shows in the room with squillions, you're like, oh crap. I feel threatened by their power, influence, confidence. That has to stop. Because people pick it up. And all people, rich or poor, want to be valued for who they are, not what they have or they don't have. So we have to not judge. A a friend of ours picked us up from the airport in his fancy pants car, drove us into his garage with three other fancy pants cars in it, and as he was doing it, said to us, when you see where I live, don't judge me. This is a great Christian guy. He's used to Christians judging him. He gives away a fortune to all of us, what would be a fortune to all of us, all the time. His tithe, if he, if he operated tithing in the way that we think of it, he would swamp a small church with money. All right, so just think about your tithe for a minute. Say, say you're tithing six grand a year. Say you're tithing 12 grand a year. That's great, and that really helps us and would be part of our, of our budget. Say something comes along and their tithe is 80K or 100K. That makes them ask different questions about the environment they're putting their money in Hence the envelopes. Remember the envelopes? They want to know that their many zeros on the end is actually being handled with great probity. And it's not just going to disappear because the greater the amount, the bigger the temptation. Trust me. I've been in a church years ago where money got siphoned off. If If you're in need... And you're in poverty and you're counting the money and there's a whole stack of cash. You've got to protect our people. I didn't meant to keep going on about that. There must be a reason. So to the, to the rich that are going to come amongst us, they need to encounter no judgment, no suspicion, no assessment of them. And we need to be able to be secure and not feel inferior because of their superior wealth. And we can't envy. So the other thing is, is, is not having envy and not having relationships with people with resources with an agenda. There's a great proverb in Proverbs 23, 1 to 3. It says, when you're sitting at the table of a king, put a knife to your throat. And you're like, What? And the point of it is, don't let your appetites be aroused by all the plentiful provision around you so you start filling your face in some rude and horrible way. No, you have to keep yourself in check. When you're around people like this, you have to say, I have no desire for you to give me any of your money. I love you as a friend because you're awesome. Do you see? I have a lot of needs back home that... You know, if, if you just sold one of those cars, it would probably sort my pension out. <laughs> but if you start doing that internally, they know. And God is calling us to be a church in which people like that can show up 
and they feel really at home. They can just be there. They're not being tapped up for a few quid, subtly or unsubtly. And I, you'd be surprised how unsubtle some Christians can be around people of influence, not just with money, but other kinds of it. We've had people come in here with recognized prophetic ministry, and they're just trying to come to church, and they end up with a queue of people who know them asking for a prophetic word. Stop, church! If someone comes in, you think, oh, what, what would happen? What happened if the first minister came to church? What would we do? What would happen if the first minister of Scotland was sat in the pew next to you next week? Would you want to disagree with her politically? Would you want to praise her politically? Would you question the latest decisions coming out of Holyrood? Or would you say, I think I recognize you. Great to see you. Just, just love you. Look, oh, yes, you're, you're, you're Nicola Sturgeon. Thanks for serving us. And now, would you like a cup of tea? Do, are, you, are you getting me? Are you clocking me? The church has to be a great place for people of influence and wealth, as well as a great place for middle-class people and a great place for poor people that no one gets demeaned, no one gets patronized, no one gets envied, and no one gets judged. Either end of the spectrum, anybody that's not like you has to be feeling the same feeling that you feel. Uh, and I've gone a bit over, but I'm just going to land it with this. People like that are looking for a great vision to back. It went around the internet a couple of years ago. Some guy whose vision was to dance, a, not a very great dance in every country of the world, got given a ton of money by some benefactor who bought into his vision. And he's got all these little YouTube clips of this guy doing his dance in Cambodia. And, and, and. <laughs> People with lots of resources are actually looking for a place to pour them into but they need a great vision they need something that's inspiring them they need to see that there's financial probity and they need to and the structures and there are sensible approaches to money because they can see it a mile off when you're used to dealing with that kind of cash and they're looking for leadership character because they don't want their money to become their influence they don't want it to become a lever of manipulation because a guy I spoke to once, probably his tithe was half the church income. If he walks away, they're in deep doo-doo. That's influence. And you need to be a strong leadership to handle that. And these people are looking for that and I believe God's doing that with us right here. Because I think there's probably hundreds of people around Glasgow and Scotland that are influential and wealthy and looking for a place just to be known and loved like we all are. Yeah? So that, that's kind of not off-piste really, but it seemed a good place to talk about that. So can we stand and let's just pray about next week's offering. We're urging you to think about regular giving, upping that, starting that. We're urging you to come with a, a lump sum gift so that we can re-establish our hub. One of the reasons we're doing this is for the first time in the, all the years of this church, our giving actually went down in the financial year we just came out of. It's never happened. Even, even in the uh, credit crunch, it didn't happen. We, our income went up. 
So, and it went down by the amount we were spending on the old hub that we used to have. So if we're going to get a new one and a better one, we actually need that God to do that and that to reappear, as well as a lump sum to make all the other things happen. So Father, we thank you for giving us money that, brings gl- that when we use it right, enables more glory to be seen on the earth, the church to be strengthened, people to be saved, wisdom to be released, and for your plan to happen more quickly. So Father, we just commit and recommit ourselves to giving uh, generously, sacrificially, and when you speak to us about what you want us to do as a community next week as we take up our offering together. In Jesus' name, amen.